It's Tuesday, June 6th, and you're listening to a brand new episode of the Julian Dion Comedy Hour podcast. On today's episode, trumpetist, trumpetist, trumpeteer, trumpist? Trumpeteer, of course, trumpeteer. Andre Doublesten is my guest. We have a great chat, and uh, he plays in the studio. We get some, some lay down some trumpet beats tracks. What am I saying? And it all starts now. <laughs> Welcome, welcome to the Julian Dion Comedy Hour podcast. As I said, off the top, off the tizzy, obviously. Thanks for listening. My guest today, Andre Doublesten, trumpeteer, travels the world with symphonies and orchestras and performs. A young guy, too, early 20s. We get into all that. It's a great interview. You're going to enjoy it. I enjoyed it. And he plays. I find anybody that does anything really, really good is just fascinating to watch and listen to. And he's one of those guys. He's really, really good at what he does. And you kind of get drawn in when he's playing. It's it's a beautiful thing. I hope you like it. Thanks for all the uh, the feedback on the Rene Dupree episode. It was great to catch up with him, old friend. I do wish, like I said in the last epi, I do wish we had talked more about growing up because we've got so many stories and uh, we are going to do a part two this month at some point. Remember to email the show, pod at jdcomedyhour.com. You like that kitten off the top? I was holding a kitten in the intro. If you want to see it, follow on Instagram at jdcomedyhour. And uh, cute, cute kitten, but gross. Kittens can be, they're just little like fuselages of shit like to just eat and, and shit and um, so cute but yet so gross he did this thing he slept he slept in our bed the first couple nights and he did this thing in the middle of the night where I felt this uh, kind of this sharp nibble I'll call it right on my nip he was trying to nurse on my man nipple and then I threw him off you know, because I panicked. I didn't know what was happening. And he landed on the other nip. Started frantically trying to nurse both of my nips in the middle of the night. So I was alert after that, no less. I now sleep with a shirt on. Nursing kitten. on, my, And they're gross. And then I woke up in the morning and there was like a... a, a little brown thing on my pillow and I went really close and smelled it it was shit it's cat shit kitten shit on my pillow 
So between the nursing and the shit on my pillow, disgusting. He's a disgusting little thing, but cute to look at. And it's funny how quick you can... I always was annoyed by people that treat pets as their child. You know, these people, oh, we don't have... We don't have a, a, a human child, but we do have, you know, whatever, enter name there. Whether it's a cat or dog, people... Ch- and I never thought I'd be like that person, because I always... Obviously, there's no comparison, you know, to raising a child. But all of a sudden, you find yourself talking with friends, saying things like, Oh, finally, he's sleeping through the night. We're so happy. And, uh, used to, like, things, his age, oh, he's, he's 23 months. What? It just kind of creeps up on you. Now I'm that person. No, we're so, finally, he's sleeping through the night. And, you know, because before he used to wake up two, three times to nurse on my man nips. Anyways, are you enjoying this content, by the way? It's all about content nowadays. Content driven. You gotta... You got to put out content. You get, you have to post on Facebook and and Facebook stories and Facebook Live and Messenger and Messenger My Day and uh, Instagram and Instagram Stories and Instagram Live and Snapchat and Snapchat Stories and LinkedIn and who uses LinkedIn? P.S. And you gotta you have to blog. And you gotta drive traffic. You got you gotta do podcasts. Content. It's exhausting. Everybody, because everybody's building a brand, an empire. What do you do for a living? I'm building my empire. How can everybody have an empire? We're just gonna have a world full of emperors. That's not good. Who's, who's gonna serve the emperors if we're all emperors? You're just gonna have a society filled with entitled people building. Even if it's not an empire yet, people are just treating it, building an empire. You gotta drive traffic to to your thing content so how is how is this content are you set email me at pod at jdcomedy.hour.com and tell me that you accept me okay it's all about the content oh i should mention this uh, monkton coming home uh to skidok to dieppe just mentioned three places in in one there uh well we'll be performing i'll be performing <laughs> I'll be performing at uh, in Dieppe, my first full-length French show. You know, French is my first language. I've been doing stand-up for over 10 years now in English. I've had many opportunities to do it in French, and I've always turned them down because I'd always had these ideas in my head that French comedy was different. It's different beats. It's different timing. It's different energy, and it's not just a matter of translating and the energy that it takes to put into one language. I figured I would focus on English, and But that's all I was just getting in my own way until I realized it uh, is just a matter of translating. I did my first ever French set as part of the Hubcap Comedy Festival at the Capitol Theater in Moncton this year, and it went great. It was the most comfortable I've felt on stage because, of course, it's my natural, it's my first language. So I'll be at uh, La Caserne in Dieppe on Saturday, June 17th. Tickets are on sale now, and uh, along with J.C. Surette, which uh, we started doing stand-up together uh, at Yak Yaks in Moncton. Then he kind of branched off and did... He still does it in English, but he does uh, predominantly in French, I do believe. And he's going to be on the show. It'll be fun. 
fun little throwback comedy weekend in Moncton, and also on the show, uh, Martin Saunier, our funny guy. And uh, so come check that out. I'm shitting my pants a little bit, but it uh, it's going to be fun. It's going to be a good... Uh, La Caserne is a beautiful, nice little 200-seat theater. I did a show there with Nikki Payne, actually, this past February. As a matter of fact, it's part of the Hubcap Fest, and uh, chose to go back there and very excited about it. So get your tickets. Come on out, Moncton peeps. Okay? How's the content? Am I doing okay? Are you relating to the content? Are we building a relationship? Are you going to contribute to my empire? Bow down to your emperor, please. Okay, let me get to my interview because it is a good one. I mean, I say that all the time, but I mean it this time. All right? All the other times, just filler. This time, I mean it. Andre Doublestand is a guy I met... Uh, I drive a lot between Ottawa and Toronto, and sometimes I'll do these ride shares where I'll just fill my car with people, and we go down. And I met this guy. I picked him up, and I noticed that he had a... Uh, like a hard case, I put it in my trunk and asked him what it was. It was a trumpet. Trumpet? Trumpet. Is it trumpet or trumpet? Trumpet. Trumpet. All right, trumpet. And uh, he told me he went to uh, Juilliard and UCLA and he plays in Germany once a year and he travels with the symphonies and uh, he's he's just, he's the real deal. So we chatted it's a four and a half hour drive and the whole way did not stop. A couple of windbags. Felt bad for the other people in the car that were trying to nap. We're talking about trumpet. Anyway, great, great guy. Very uh, affable. Is that a word? Yeah, okay. All right. So uh, let's just get into it. We'll be back on Friday with another episode. I don't have a guest on Friday. It's going to be solo pods. It'll be just me catching up on uh, on things it's hard to write talk about news because things happen so fast doing this twice a week i take notes throughout the week of things i want to talk about but then it's just old news cafe cafe is old news uh, uh kathy griffin it's all old news now so uh i don't know what i'm going to talk about on friday but let's uh we'll do it together okay so in the meantime enjoy my chat now with the one and the only andre doublesten <laughs> Just like the flowers, laughing all day long. People, I need to lose. Sing a little song, then take a shower. Julian Dion, comedy This episode is also brought to you by Too Soon and Beginnings, my my two comedy albums. That's right. You took out advertising space on your own. You took out advertisement space on your, your. You took out ad space on your own podcast. Yeah, I did. It's very cheap and easy. For more information, email pod at jdcomedyhour.com. My two albums, Too Soon and Beginnings, both recorded in Moncton over the last few years, are now available for digital download at jdcomedy.ca. Go ahead and grab that. I know you want, you're curious, you're like, ah, I kind of want to know what this is about. Just do it. Go to jdcomedy.ca and get your copy of Too Soon and Beginnings. jdcomedy.ca, jdcomedy.ca. Oh, you want, oh, you want a sample? You want a little, you want to wet your beak? I can do that. Here's Too Soon. Marathons a year, so therefore, 
feels you taking this ch No. Here's a clip from Beginnings. I'm having a I'm just... Hey, no, this is weird. I just like this. Now, how how could you not want to hear the whole thing? Do it. JDComedy.ca. Get too soon in Beginnings. JDComedy.ca. JDComedy.ca. Awesome. And that, of course, is my guest that you just heard uh, there today, the freakishly talented, my freakishly talented guest, uh, I should say. And, uh, oh man, what can I say about this guy? He travels uh, all over the world. Uh, he's part of the Canadian Opera Company, the Toronto Symphony, and the Orchestra Giovanni Europe in uh, Italy. And uh, he's been to UCLA, he's been to McGill, Juilliard, he's a classically trained trumpeteer, and I'm thrilled to have him here. And he sits across from me in Lemon Press Studios today. Andre Doublestin is in the house. Hey, brother, how you doing? Yeah, I'm happy to be here. I'm doing great. <laughs> Thank you so much. Great, yeah. Thank you for, um, for doing the podcast. It's my pleasure. I appreciate it. Now, what I like to do is, uh, this, these are your cans, by the way, these are your levels. Okay. We could have covered this before, but this is professional. This is behind the scenes. People get to... <laughs> yeah, man. It's, it's a nice studio. Thank you, brother. Right. Uh, so I, what I like to do is introduce uh, you to people because they might know you from your music playing or not at all. And either way, we get to, get to, uh, we get to know the other side of Andre. And so uh, first of all, you and I met randomly. Very randomly. We did a ride yeah. share together. I was uh, coming from Ottawa. I um, I like doing rideshare because you meet interesting people always. And uh, sure enough, sitting in my front seat uh, from Juilliard and <laughs> a super talented trumpeteer was you. And uh, and so we got to talking through the ride. Actually, within the first couple minutes that we were talking, I'm like, I got to... Well, I think I, I noticed CDs in your car, and as soon as I see CDs, and you can always tell if you're in any sort of arts when it's a uh, when it's something somebody owns and listens to, or if it's somebody who has recorded something. That's right. And it yeah. was so odd. It was just like the box of CDs, uh, box of albums, and and I can't help but try to you know feed that curiosity and and strike up a conversation. And instantly, instantly, I knew we kind of had this connection, and I knew you'd be a great guest. Uh, right away, we started talking about you know comedy and music and all that. There's always that weird moment when you do a ride share where you meet the person because. I do this thing where where I put it out there, then I get messages from people. All right away, always I think they there's they're out to get me in some in some fashion. I'm mean, what the fuck is this person? But uh, you and I didn't really communicate before. We just met, and there was there's always this brief window when you meet someone for a ride share. It's like 
So who does the, the murdering? Do I kill you? Do, do you kill me? How does well, exactly? <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's a little. I would imagine it's different being in being the driver and not because people were going into a ride share. I, I don't right. know if I told you this story. I, I took a ride share once, and there was a guy who was driving this van. I don't know how it was roadworthy. Like one of the wheels sort of kind of had a little buckle to it. You know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah. And he was really chatty, but he didn't speak very very great English, which is not a big deal. But he would insist on looking at me while oh, yeah. talking and driving and it was just the most thing you never know who you're going to get driving that's either right. you know yeah yeah that's that's funny there, there's that moment and uh so, and i because i do the trip between ottawa and toronto a lot so i'll off, often just look for people to to jump on and there's that weird moment and then th- this last week i did another one and i had these three students with me and i told them they you know found out that i was a comic and this and that and and then i inv- pathetically invited them to one of my shows <laughs> <laughs> that's always another weird moment we're like hey if you guys aren't doing anything tonight and they were like super into it they're like we'll be there for sure and they didn't show up and so since then i've been thinking what the fuck did they steal from from my car yeah right you know why didn't they not show up anyways all that to say uh i had a great chat with you and, and right away knew you're a super fascinating guy interesting guy with uh with a very elaborate background and experience. So let's just get right into it. Let's get to know you. So where are you from originally? I was born in Toronto, but I uh, spent most of my, I guess, formative years, my childhood in the States. So I I spent a majority of my school time in Portland, Oregon. So that's kind of where... uh, It's strange. I I consider Toronto home now. I've lived here now for, for a long time. And I'm sort of getting... I think I'm pretty close to having lived in Canada longer than the U.S., but mm-hmm. I spent so many years uh, in in Oregon, and then I lived in New York City for a little while, and then Los Angeles, and then Montreal, and then from Montreal back to Toronto. So crazy. Yeah. Well, we're gonna we're gonna dive in and and dissect it all. And uh, why the, so much traveling? What was your? Um, I mean, I think I asked you this on the drive. You're, you're not a military brat. Your father was in advertising. No, no, my father was. Uh, no, no, uh, my father is a scientist. He's a chemist. scientist. Yeah. A chemi- chemist. Who's the in advertising? Uh, I'm thinking of someone. I think of things. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, no. It's it's interesting because when I was going to Ottawa, I wound up speaking to somebody about advertising because I have a friend in Toronto who uh, who works for a big advertising company. So. Right. Uh, that's kind of interesting that you also had a yeah, conversation. As soon as, you, as soon as you mentioned chemist, I rem- remember yeah. now. And I'm thinking actually the other, in, the last interview I did, my last podcast guest, her father was in advertising. That's oh, okay. why I made, <laughs> I made that, oddly made that connection. But so, I, I moved around just uh, originally just my dad's my uh, dad's work. So we, uh, we were born in, in Canada, in Toronto. And then we lived in Blacksburg, Virginia when I was very, very young. And then my dad got a job in, in Oregon. And Are you so, a dual citizen or not yet? Not yet. Working not yet. on it. Yeah, working on it. You have it. a green card or something. Yeah. yeah. Oh, cool. And kind of an ignorant question, but what does a chemist do? I mean, I know like that. I know what in, in the general arena of chemistry, but what 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 like when your father would go to work? What the hell did he do as a chemist? So he was a research chemist for polymer sciences, so like wood and plastics. And he worked for a company called Boise oh, yeah. Cascade. And he also consulted. Uh, he really, looking back, had interesting companies that he would consult for. Uh, you know, he ended up going to the Jet Propulsion Labs at one point in California, and also a company in Mobile, Alabama, that does all the heat treating for space shuttle parts and all that. But he was, um, in terms of his career, uh, a research chemist for... Uh, pulp and the pulp and paper industry. He graduated in forest forest chemistry. Right. And yeah. your mother, what did she do? Uh, she raised us. She was also a translator at a hospital for a long time. She taught, and then she went into banking, oh, which cool. is where she is now. 
cool yeah. and you can you kind of float, floating around with with you guys while moving and just get it. yeah well i mean in terms of my childhood we were in oregon for i mean all like all, all of middle and high school and part of mm-hmm. grade school it was when i went to university you know i first right after high school i went to new york to study and then uh i was accepted to ucla so i went there uh for a little bit and then transferred to mcgill and actually when i was at mcgill i was going to school at mcgill but traveling down to the states every weekend uh when in music you you don't necessarily go to a school because of the prestige of the name. You always go to study with a teacher and you want to also surround yourself with the, the highest kind right. of level of, of musicians, you know, a school like Juilliard or Eastman or Curtis, which are all phenomenal music schools. There are times where certain programs aren't that strong. You know, there, there might be a great music school that just doesn't have a good trumpet program. Maybe the teacher moved, you know, or maybe there just, you know, isn't a good teacher there at the time. So you really want to, my teacher that I probably learned the most for after leaving high school was this guy, Mark Gould, who uh, teaches at Juilliard. He also teaches at Bard College. And uh, he used to tell people not to go to school. He's people like, why the fuck are you going to school? He's like, all you got to do, you just got to take lessons and just be around good people. He was like a, a teacher, but sort of a big, uh, he would always question your motivation of going to school because right. everyone wants to go to the prestigious school and they don't really know why. Uh, but that's the reason I moved around a lot was just bouncing between teachers. Uh, oh, cool. And, and so your parents were not musicians professionally, no. but any musical talent in there? Like it was a genetic thing or how, do, how does one, because let's, first of all, we should mention that now your current, um, do you say member of the... Well, I'm playing with the opera right now. Playing with the opera. Yeah, um, and I've played with the symphony a bit. Right. Um, and uh, I'm going to Quebec City actually in a couple of days to play. Uh, so I, I kind of play every, but the majority of the work that I do in Toronto is was with the opera, the uh, Canadian Opera Company. It's interesting interviewing you because, well, I'm I'm interested in it because, m- for the most part, musicians that I've interviewed actually I think ex- all exclusively are like guitar players or your typical rock band kind of member, <laughs> where they picked up a guitar at a young age or wanted to be to front a, a, a band and started singing, but I've never had the chance to sit down with someone who plays in an orchestra it almost seems it's there's like this uh kind of mystique that comes with that it's like <laughs> it's like uh, the, the, there's like a finesse like uh how, i don't know how to how to properly articulate what i'm trying to say but it's, it's no, i know what you're saying you, you know it's yeah, kind I of like rock and roll and stuff it's like all right you pick up an instrument and it's kind of rough around the edges for many years until it kind of just clicks and and you got to put in a lot a lot of time same but it's like I feel like what you do, it's like you read music and it's like with a with a scalpel, you kind of... I don't know if I'm making any no, sense. No, no, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, in a way, you're absolutely right. Um, I mean, this idea of classical music and the prestige and all, it, it's really nice. Uh, it actually sort of affects the industry in a negative way a lot of times. Uh, and that's not the fault of, of the people or the audience. But I'd say the biggest struggle that classical musicians have and orchestras have is just... Uh, you know, how do you keep getting an audience? You know, the opera company's lucky. The opera company is doing, in terms of audience, at least from what I understand, you know, really well. But uh, classical music definitely has this, it's almost like a trope at this point that, right. uh, you know, it's sort of this high society thing. And and that can actually cause a lot of problems because uh, there's a lot of people that have brought to operas, you know, say, here's a ticket, like, why don't you come check it out? And the most common reaction I get is they're like, I can't believe this is what this was. I thought it was going to be this thing where you have to dress up and sit super yeah, still yeah, and yeah. all that. Um, but also, it, I mean, it gets that it gets that reputation because uh, in terms of like the technical aspect of playing classical music, right. it can be really challenging. 
the best jazz guys in the world uh, that I know all have some sort of classical training. It's like an artist who gets you know training in, in, in you know, like a painter who gets you know trained in really classic mm-hmm. you know classic styles of painting. Um, so it does you know it does warrant the sort of scalpel approach because you spend you know every day practicing improving because you're always playing something that's you know if not technically challenging musically challenging and it's mm-hmm. it's really a language a language all its own and you're right seeing it live is so different than the perception out there because it is quite electrifying to see an orchestra because there's so many moving parts that that make it w- what it is when you watch it and see how it unfolds it is qu- actually really uh, electric more than more than anything when you do watch it um this is just a side note because again I'm ignorant to this kind of to like classical music and and whatever and then we'll get back to kind of your path but in an orchestra the and this is outside looking in but there's a lot of that there's a lot that's put on the shoulders of the conductor it, what is that like is that, like not to take away from what a conductor does cuz I'm sure but they're like the front of the thing they're like almost rock stars in a sense in that world how important is a conductor? And again, totally ignorant question to ask. I'm just this is a world that's completely foreign to me. And what I when I see a conductor, I'm like, what is he actually doing up there? And again, any conductors listening, no dis- nothing but respect. I just, I, I just this is not a world that I know anything of. No, that's a that's a good question. And I've studied a lot of conducting, and I've conducted a little bit, and it's something that interests me. And that's a very good question. A conductor's job, I would say, the closest thing I could off the top of my head think of is like a, like a basketball coach. Um, he's not playing, but uh, my impression of what a coach does and what a coach should do and what a conductor does and what a conductor should do is take all of these people, because in an orchestra, you can have up to 95, you know, mm-hmm. some piece, some big pieces like that, people playing at the same time. And all these people are required to play the notes in front of them in a certain style while maintaining sort of their, what they were hired for, their individual uh, idea of the music, their individual sound, um, and, you know, outside of that, you have sections like the trumpet section that has to, you know, organize how they play together within the context of a, the brass section. So the trombones and the French horns, right. which then, you know, you know, in concert with the woodwinds and the strings and the conductor's job is to put that all together and lead all these people in a certain direction. Uh, he, he is responsible for keeping things together at times. Uh, that's a lot more an opera because he has to manage what's going on up on stage mm-hmm. and in the pit. Um, but for the most part, the conductor's there to inspire a certain image of the piece that you're playing. You need uh, you need a cohesive message, so to speak. You can't have 90 people kind of doing whatever the heck they want. Right. Um, and and he's he's in charge of that. Uh, you can a good orchestra can get away with playing with a bad conductor, right? Like, mm-hmm. but when you have a great conductor who brings all this stuff together, um, brings the orchestra together, gets all of these egos sort of you know, playing the same kind of game, uh, it can be absolutely remarkable. Yeah, so a good conductor earns that status, I would say, very much. You, but you kind of answered my question was like a good orchestra could kind of get away with it with a bad... Not an uh, opera. Not, not an, an opera. opera? No. It, it really rests on the conductor? Well, sure, because the stage is really deep, so you also have the fact that sound travels and sometimes things sound late, but you can't get behind right. uh, the sort of... Uh, dance of you know getting the orchestra and the singers to do everything together yeah. while the singers are running around on stage and acting is it's very important. To Got have it. Because I always conductor. thought like how much stock do you guys as members of the orchestra put into the conductor? Like, couldn't you just read the music and it would all kind of just happen? But I guess not. I guess it, like in, in a way you could, but you wouldn't want to. I mean, 
from personal experience, I can tell you they're conductors. I mean, the amount I'm actually looking at a conductor is a lot less than you'd expect. First of all, you can see them out of your peripheral vision. Right. But in general, if you're looking at a piece of music and you see something coming up that you know is important, you know this is a line that either you or your section, um, you know, you're kind of taking the lead or you're you're doing something kind of important to this particular part of the music, I will, you know, glance at the conductor and there's maybe he'll want to change something in the moment or just, you know, the piece is being, it's going a little slower, a simple example, than it was in rehearsal and he's going to try to kind of pick it back up. It's important to have that contact. So there's some conductors, and especially if a conductor is a really good musician and you're really appreciating what he's bringing to the table, you want more contact. But there have definitely been concerts, I know, more than I can count where you don't even want to look at the guy. You right. Just, you just... You don't acknowledge him. You just play, and you, you just kind of go. And it's just kind of part of the show. Yeah, and then he just hopefully doesn't get hired again. And and because they affect what like like tempo, like when you come in, how fast, how loud you're playing. Like yeah. is that like what kind of signals can they give? Like what's the range of of you know language that they can communicate to you in the middle of a piece? In the middle of a piece, quite a bit. I mean, they can just you know simply as you know having you play quieter, having you play louder. You know, telling you to go faster. Or and are slower. there universal signs for that, or every conductor is different? Because I know that stylistically they're kind of all different. But a, a good blueprint is if you're conducting bigger, mm-hmm. you usually want something louder. If you're right. conducting smaller in terms of motion, you want something softer. Um, if he's just clearly trying to move his arms faster, that means he wants it to go faster or slower. In a concert, that's rare because most of the important work a conductor does is in the rehearsals leading up to it. it. Once you organize the vision, especially if you have a good orchestra, they're going to do 90% of what, you know, has been worked on in rehearsal if everything has gone well. And then, you know, little adjustments here or there, or maybe, you know, because the audience is here, they're absorbing a little more sound and the conductor wants a little more, but he has, he has a lot of say. Uh, And the best concerts I've ever played are ones where I don't even have to like his interpretation. I can disagree with his interpretation. And there have been concerts where I, I feel strongly about a piece and the conductor's doing something that's completely opposite to what I would like, but I believe in his interpretation regardless. And the whole orchestra sort of finds this cohesion and um, and the orchestra reacts to what he wants and he reacts to what he's hearing and it can be an amazing experience. Is that a coveted position to be a, to, to, to be a conductor? Like how does one become a conductor? Do you have to have a life... Of experience, you can you be. A, are there such things as young conductors? Yeah, uh, you you said it best though uh, when we were talking about in the car about uh, somebody said I want to, you know, I want a brilliant young comic or something. Yeah, something someone around was this looking lines. for a comedian, a, a great comedian in their twenties, and the booker said, if you meet a great Canadian in a comedian in their twenties, they're lying about their age. It yeah. just boils down to life experience and all this kind of stuff. So the way you become a conductor, there's a few avenues you can study conducting. I mean, uh, I think the easiest, or at least the way that makes the most sense is you, if you're a pianist, because you can look at a score and play a majority of all the parts, right? So, because if you play trumpet or you play violin, you can't, I mean, you can learn piano and do that, but a pianist is so capable of just sitting down and reading a score, thereby learning the music that he has to conduct and deciding on his own interpretation without listening to too many recordings. We were right. talking a little bit about being influenced by you know, comics or musicians and how it affects your own interpretation. You can study conducting at school. Uh, personally, I worked with a conductor from Italy who I still work with uh, every year, and I just wanted to study under him. He's a very, very good, uh, quite famous opera conductor in Italy. And so I was his assistant conductor, which is a very common thing to do. You just you assist different conductors in different places. And the idea is you learn repertoire, you learn, you can 
follow a score without worrying too much about the results. And then it's just, it's about experience and getting podium time. Uh, it's, I've found that most of the conductors I like the most were at some point musicians mm-hmm. because there's just a lot that, you know, are really simple and it's not a very nuanced answer is, you know, a lot of times somebody will make a mistake. And if you've played in an orchestra, you know, this is a mistake that was just either they were fiddling with their instrument. They just, you know, during rehearsal didn't get back in time to see, you know, what note was written in front of it. And you know, it's a kind of a throwaway mistake that won't happen again. And, uh, but all oh, what happened? Why is, you know, and that can be, it can really slow down a rehearsal process. So, uh, right. And can a conductor fuck up? Like if, oh, yeah. if it's oh, the middle yeah. of middle of a performance and he cues someone or like, Oh yeah. It happens all the time. Oh, is that right? Yeah. I mean, that's, there's two things about that. One is not everyone is always looking at him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and two, by the time a concert rolls around, I don't want to say autopilot because that's not the right word. But if a conductor fucks up, unless he royally fucks up and somebody kind of jumps, yeah, it's really not likely that it's going to ruin the performance. I don't think I've ever been in a in a situation aside from like youth orchestra when I was really young that anything had to stop or got that was that much of a train wreck. I've been I've right. been part of a few close calls, like that's yeah. for sure. But uh, in terms of like total train wrecks, I, I think yeah. it's really rare. Well, it's like you said too; they do most of the heavy lifting and re- rehearsal. Yeah. Right? All right, enough about conductors. That answers that because I was always I've always been curious. Oh, they tend to have incredibly strong personalities, though. Well, yeah, because yeah. sometimes, I mean, sometimes I've seen orchestras where you can't take your eye off the conductor. They're so eclectic and, like, just... Those it's the shitheads. It's the shitheads who... Oh, really? Oh, my God. Like, <laughs> there, there's an arrogance that comes with being a bad conductor in charge of stuff. <laughs> you know, it's just... Right, right. Oh, these guys, man. It, it, that, that's... that's the, those are the ones... Uh, because then their ego is born to play. Because sometimes they don't need to be that flashy or, or yeah. flamboyant about it, you know. And then I mean that's pure insecurity coming. You know, it's right. funny we were talking before the start of this about you know an audience clapping or being like so excited that it's kind of weird. Yeah. Like how much of that is like a, a window into the way my mind operates on like, oh things are being successful. It must be something wrong with them. Not that I'm actually that's doing anything right. right, right you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, but conductors, you know, they they can't keep time or they're just terrible. So what they do is they like lash out at people and they try to make these big gestures because they're just absolutely fucking useless. Wow. That's interesting. Fascinating. Okay. So back to you. Uh, So you don't necessarily come from a musical family or background. How do, how do you, first of all, a get into music and B choose the trumpet of all trumpet? Yeah. Well, my brother started playing saxophone. He's incredible. He won a bunch of competitions. Uh, He's now a recording engineer. Did he start in like school or? or Yeah, he just, I think he just wanted to play an instrument. Like we, we both played piano. Like any person that comes from a, I mean, I'm sure this applies to a bunch of cultures, but Russian background, my family, my grandparents, you know, emigrated during the war. Everyone plays piano, Mm. at least a little bit. It's just part of your life, you you know, and I don't think either of us liked it at all. My brother started playing saxophone and he's an older brother, so I have to do everything my older brother does. And then we went to the store and I tried a trumpet and I immediately could play. I could, I mean, I'm sure it wasn't great, but I could, it made sense to me and I could play a note. Just kind of fit? Just kind of fit. Mm -hmm. And how old were you at this point? Eight. Eight. Yeah. And And I think around nine is when I... You know, my, my parents were like, all right, let's give them some lessons. Let's see what happens. They're always very supportive. And they insist, if you're going to do this for one year, let's at least try it seriously yeah, for get, a year. Get yeah. Both feet into it. Were you playing at school at all at this Not point? Not at that point, actually. I don't think the school I was at had a band program yet. I think I was too young. I think they had like like recorder, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Those recorder yeah. classes and like choir and then like 
hitting drums or something. I don't remember. But um, I don't think it was until I got into the seventh grade or sixth grade, maybe even later, that I joined a band program. Actually, let's do this. Let's take a quick uh, two-minute break. We're going to play a song, and um, we'll be back in just a minute. So now uh, here it is. A little ditty from one of my faves. You hear him off the top every time. He's Mike Bennett, the word man of Alcatraz. And this is That's What You Get. You're a sucker for a pretty fit. You got the prize you want to raise. Conversation has a little less pace. Like I thought we was going shopping tonight. That's what you get. That's what you get, that's what you get with a girl like that. That's what you get, that's what you get, that's what you get with a girl like that. Yeah, get it. Yeah, you went after what you saw. You broke the code, you broke the law. Cause you like less in that brain than the bra You really gonna wear that shirt tonight Oh, that's what you get That's what you get That's what you get With a girl like that That's what you get That's what you get That's what you get With a girl like that myself a better girl Woo, yeah that's what you get That's what you get by Wordman of Alcatraz. Go to the Wordman of Alcatraz.bandcamp.com for more. And we're back with my guest Andre Devilston. Okay, before the break, we were talking about um, your start. You picked up a trumpet, trump, trumpet, 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 trumpet. See, I'm French, so sometimes I I combine <laughs> I combine French and English pronunciations. It's for, the, it's for the Quebec listeners. Yeah, trump. I say trumpet. You say trumpet. Uh, so you picked up your first trumpet. I feel really Anglo now. <laughs> you picked up your first trumpet at uh, the age of nine and kind of uh, got into it, dove in. And then when, at what point, so you started kind of playing, taking lessons, and then at what point do you kind of, right away are you hooked in? Do you think this is a lifelong thing or do you just not think about it that much? At what point do you kind of think, okay, okay making me have a career out of this? Uh, I was... I was definitely uh, supported by my parents very quickly, and and I don't think I ever had a moment. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I even thought about it all altogether too much, but uh, you know, in the first couple of years, you know, I had you know some success at competitions and things like this, and uh, I enjoyed it. I just kept going. My my personality is kind of interesting in the sense that um, I'm a very selectively disciplined person. That sort of spread recently, but. Uh, like I was terrible in school. I never wanted to do homework. I mean, I did 
okay just because I could, you know, do tests and all that. But I would never, I've never been a person to put any effort at all into something that, you know, I don't enjoy. And, right. and when you're a younger person, that, that includes things that you know you should do. Like, you know, as you get older, okay, I don't really want to, you know, keep my apartment clean, but you do because you're happier as right. a result. But, um, I never thought about it, but if I look back, I just practiced all the time. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed playing. Um, uh, I never felt forced ever. Right. Uh, there, I mean, there were times if I was preparing for something and I wanted to play hockey with my friends, you know, my parents would listen, like, you got to practice. No, that's pretty good. They kind of forced you uh, to, to, to commit to it, right, in a way? Yeah. And, I mean, I asked them, you know, I, I said, you know, it must have been a nightmare having to get me to practice. And they said, no, you, you remember it wrong because... That was very, very uh, rare that we had to force you to sit down. Right, right. And practice. Also, it seems, what do you do? You just go in your room and belt it out? Because it seems like if you're practicing guitar or something, you can kind of manage the sound, either acoustic or put some headphones in your amp or whatever. But a trumpet is so... No, it's loud uh, as fuck. Aggressive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So well, we had a big living room growing right. up. And uh, actually, my apartment now in Toronto, I have a very big living room. So I just set up on one side and it's not so bad. Um, I've taken to p- practicing some things with earplugs. Okay, yeah. Um, you know, I don't... Damaging your hearing is not that hard. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so uh, I do... If I'm just doing like exercises, for instance, like I do a lot of just exercises, you know, akin to stretching or strength training or something, uh, or breathing exercises are big. And if I'm doing something like that, or if I want to really hear how I'm like attacking a note, like the first sound you make, it's actually pretty good to do that with earplugs. But I've become a lot more aware of this mm-hmm. probably in the last couple of years. What's that thing that you put at the end that kind of... Oh, actually, I have one. Okay, I was going to ask you to bring yeah, yeah. it to show... Yeah, what, actually, what? I, have the, I have one that'll describe it perfectly. It's called a mute. Right. Uh, and basically, it just changes the entire sound of the instrument. Yeah. So you get more metallic sound, or you can kind of sound like you're yelling at somebody. Right, right. And that's the one I brought. I brought the one that'll, that they use mostly for like jazz. Right, cool. Yeah, we'll dive into that. And it's when just you, a toilet plunger. Is it yeah, yeah. essentially? <laughs> no, it's exactly. Oh, it, it actually literally is. the wood from the toilet plunger, get rid of that, and then just. No way. Do yeah. they make like specific ones nah, for that? I'm, no? I'm sure they do, but there's no reason. <laughs> Absolutely no reason. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Do you plug the end? Uh, I guess there's no hole. There's it's, no hole. Right, yeah, of yeah. course. It's uh, What am I saying? Yeah. Uh, okay, cool. That's awesome. Well, we'll, we'll whip that out in a, in a little bit. Okay, so you go through your childhood kind of practicing, being inspired by it, passionate about it. At what point do you decide... So you go through high school, and and did you go to a public high school? Or did you public go to music? Yeah, okay, public. So then you, you didn't uh, st- uh, go into studying music till uh, post secondary education. So how do you choose a schools? B uh, decide this is what you're gonna do. You know, like because it's not the most orthodox path in life. So there's it's gotta- a little more orthodox in the training than it might seem. Uh, well, first of all, through high school, I was taking lessons every week. So mm-hmm. I was, I was, I was, and I was playing lots of concerts. I was traveling all over the place playing concerts already. Uh, school is an interesting one for me because I, I'm not sure I ever wanted to go to school, uh, and it had nothing to do with wanting to play or not wanting to play. But at the time I was leaving for university, I was already touring quite a bit. Um, I was playing a lot of a lot of shows, and uh, I, I sort of went to school because. Uh, that's what's expected. You know, you finish school and you go to university. And uh, I knew I wanted to, you know, do music. But uh, to this day, I think for myself, going to school was a bit of a mistake, at least for my path. In what way? 
Uh, well, you know, you go to school in the first couple of years, they say, you know, if you want to tour and you want to play concerts, we have to do this, 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 and this. Right. But I'm already doing this, 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 and this. I had won some big competitions. Um, I was, you know, already p- played a couple concerts overseas. I was touring with this really good soprano who's now has, you know, a good friend of mine who also has like a pretty big career. So you'd already gotten a taste of making a living at this. You'd seen, you'd been around people that, uh, that make a living doing yeah. this. You had And it was of, working out. Right. Yeah. How, okay, let's just rewind just a little bit before you decided to go to school, kind of against your will. Well, it uh, wasn't against my will. I don't think I had a will. I, right. I think I just sort of was like, okay, yeah, that's what we do. That's you know? just like what you do. Yeah. So didn't, didn't go so well. <laughs> we'll get into it. What was your first uh, contest that you won, I guess? Or oh, but I think when I was... Like, how do you know that you have skill at this is, I guess, the question. The first big competition I won was in the eighth grade. Was it eighth grade or set? I think the eighth grade, I applied for this thing called the National Trumpet Competition, and I won that. And when I won that, I sort of understood that this could happen. And that was in the States? That was in the States, yeah, in, in Fairfax, Virginia, near uh, Washington, D.C. And then I won the senior, that was the junior division I won, then I won the senior division a couple of years later. Um, and from there, I was already doing, like, playing a lot of concerts. So I'd, like, play at universities or I'd play at concert halls. I, I want a I big a big competition. Well, I don't even know if you can call it a competition. There was an, or, there is an organization. Now it's called, I think it's called Young Arts or Young Artists, but it used to be called the National Foundation for Advancement in the Arts. And you apply and you can apply as a musician, as a dancer, as a painter, as a filmmaker. And if you get accepted to this, they uh, fly you to Miami for this week where you just observe all these other people, you yeah, know, cool. these amazing dancers, just the dancers were out of this world. Um, there's, there's a funny story about the first time, you know, I grew up in the suburbs of Portland, Oregon in the nineties. Um, and I was a musician, so I sort of understood that, you know, uh, there were people, there were like gay people and and transgender Mm -hmm. people. And that's not something, you know, like I think young people in the nineties really experienced, but being around a bunch of dancers. Um, and I remember I never had like a good sense of style and I was, uh, I'm digressing a little bit here, but I, I love this story. And I'm sitting, and I and I got a suit. I got this really nice suit because they paid for everything. You know, I got I got a nice haircut, and I had like a really nice suit with a vest. And I was like, ah, Do I look good? Do I look like a dope? Like I don't even know what's going on. And this dancer from New York, they were all from New York. They're all from I think LaGuardia School of the Arts, which is a really good, really good art school. This guy turns to me and just goes, "Honey, you look absolutely fantastic. Uh, you just make me want to drop all my stuff off as soon as we get there, go in the bathroom and do my makeup. And that was like the first time I was like, like I look good in a suit, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I've told this story to like my family, you know, like my conservative Russian family. Right. And they just like horrified. Like, what did you say? I was like, well, clearly I look good in a suit. Did you like, punch him in the mouth? What did you do? <laughs> yeah, man, I was so, uh, what's the term? I, I was so happy I got this compliment from yeah. a guy who clearly knew what he was talking about, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. But that, uh, that, gave me a really big scholarship. So you, I went to Miami and then uh, from that week, I won an award from that week. That was basically a scholarship that covered my school. Wow. Um, and Anywhere you wanted to go? Yeah, they thing? just sent me a check. Holy shit. Um, and, uh, and then they gave me a concert at a place that recently closed called Steinway Hall in New York City, which was a, a really, really good venue. And so that you was, just headlined this kind of concert? Yeah, thing? there were three of us that headlined this Oh my God, how old were you? 17. Wow. Yeah, so that was, that was the... And were you at that point like, holy shit balls, I can do this, this is happening? Like, Or was it just kind of organic and not much thought was into it? Well, again, I'm very selectively disciplined. And right. uh, kind of going back to the thing of like, uh, uh, you know, 
that bit of insecurity about how to react. I don't think I've ever reacted with that much awe to these things because I always assume I'm not quite there yet. You know, mm-hmm. okay, this is this is Steinway Hall, but it's not anything big. And then the first time I did it, like a I headlined it with an orchestra, like played as a soloist in Europe. It's like okay, but you know, even though this place is packed and all that, there's still another level. So I'm always sort of. Uh, unconvinced that I've made it anywhere. You know what I mean? That's the mark of any artist. It's yeah. like you always think you're sham, ready to be like uncovered, like wait, waiting for people to go. Because I thought that for a long time for comedy, I just I'd finish a show, it would go well, and I'd think, well, someone's gonna, someone's gonna know, someone's gonna bust me, like come and yeah. be like, you're I'm not a, fraud, a comic. Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing? You're not a comic. I'm like, ah, you're right. Shit. All right, I'll go back to doing whatever. Yeah, my buddy. Uh, who's the principal French horn of the opera. Uh, and that's a huge job. Uh, the other avenue of being a musician is you you dedicate yourself to winning an audition for an orchestra. Mm. Uh, and this can take years. And, and my buddy, his name is Mikhailo, just an amazing French horn player. We were talking about this because you stress out and you practice and you, you might have to do, you know, some people do like 30 auditions without winning. And you pay for all, you pay your own expenses. I mean, this is like a, it's, it's really a lot of pressure. And then you win. And he won principal horn of the Canadian Opera Company. Big job doing something remarkable he could do the rest of his life. And, and uh, at least in my, in my mind, you know, you could do that job and just be fulfilled. Playing mm-hmm. in a big hall, the best music with the best singers. And one of the first things that you notice that happens to people is they're so anxious that they have nowhere to put this like stressful energy into. Like all of a sudden you made it, but you're like, no, there's something wrong. There's so- there's something that's making me so uncomfortable. And then and people can get into like a really weird funk and depression after victory. Of you course, know? yeah. And the other side that I think influenced this so much is, and I don't know, I'm, I'd be curious to know if this is the same in comedy, is uh, I get the sense that musicians feel that it's always totally fine to bitch about things that are wrong. And that's fine. Right, I don't yeah. mind venting. Uh, everyone, I think, especially anyone who puts what they do out there, tends to do that a lot. Uh, but there's this kind of expectation that you can't celebrate your victories. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, him winning the audition, I remember he was so happy and he's like my, my best friend. And so, you know, he's just allowing himself the indulgence of just being happy for himself and being yeah. proud of his accomplishment. And there were a few people who'd come up to me and be like, oh, I don't know why the fuck you're still talking about winning. I'm like, because it's been <laughs> yeah. years, you know? And, and yeah, I think because course. you it's have your whole this... whole life's work that's not confirmed. Yeah, it? so you have this pressure of, of winning and then when you win you you're not allowed to truly celebrate like an athlete winning you know like you in the super bowl or you win you know the stanley cup they're allowed to just let that kind of emotion out there's this kind of expectation among people that this is inappropriate and i think that really weighs on people yeah you know it can cause a lot of serious problems like personal problems hell yeah and it's that's such an insider thing it's such a, a like people in within any creative feel that's such a, a way that the people inside that f- w- uh, world feel because anyone on the outside would be like celebrate that shit like that's yep. that's huge and it's such a different um like outside looking in any creative field whether it's music or comedy or acting or you know we're so privileged to be able to to be in a position to do the these kinds of things for any amount of money let alone as a living uh, but people on the outside will always be like, "Oh man, that's that's so amazing." But on the inside, it's so filled with angst and all these things and constant pits in your stomach and nerves and anxiety and 
did you say the wrong thing to the wrong person? Oh, it's, like, do they really like what? Why didn't they talk to me so much today? Did I like do something? I mean, it's just like endless. It's like, like your head just torture in a yeah, way. It's brutal. And and I, I sometimes I feel that way. Like whether it's auditions or pre-show, like on the day of a show, I'm just like so filled with angst and and waiting for the show to happen. Once it and then once you're on stage, it's amazing. Once it's finished, it's great. But oh my god, the angst! It's like. Anyone would think I'm insane. Anyone like outside looking in yeah. would be like, "What do you? Wh- why do you? You know, do this to yourself?" It's like, yeah, like torture. Like I remember driving, uh, and getting to a toll booth on a toll highway and looking at the toll person and thinking, "God, they're lucky. Like they just go to their booth every day. It's nice and quiet in there. Stability. Their stability. Yeah. They can listen to music, whatever they want. Just wait for people to come collect the money and on their way, then punch out and go do." Obviously, I'm not designed for that because I would go nuts. But but there's an appeal to that kind of like, oh man, this is the the thing I why I find it so important. Something I've done recently, probably in the last couple of years, is is try to eliminate as many negative people from my life as possible. Mm-hmm. Because there's a That's vicious huge. cycle there, where you know you can go and say, man, I wish I had the life of that toll booth guy. But if you're the the toll booth guy, you're saying, you know, I wish I had the life of this guy. Oh yeah, of course. And if you're just surrounded by, and it's so easy, especially when you're within the community that you work in, yeah. you know, people who are all kind of struggling to try to do this or that, you can get into this vicious cycle of just like pure negativity. I think it's much easier to do that in this kind of lifestyle than like an office lifestyle, because in a sense, especially as freelancers in a big way, we're kind of required in a way to keep in touch with our community a lot closer than an office community. I mean, I don't know. I don't hang out with musicians as much as I used to, but it's still always going to be there. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I think it's really easy to get caught up at least for myself, just with these people that are always kind of, kind of making it feel like a boat and making you wish you were doing something far less interesting and far against what you want to do. And you're absolutely right. It is way easier to kind of fall into that than do the opposite and remain positive and keep your eye on the prize. I mean, and just be happy. Yeah. Just be happy and fulfilled. I don't know if you've run across those people who, who kind of shit on every gig, every time there's a gig. Oh hell yeah, absolutely. And and you might even know that they enjoyed it. Yeah. 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 They may have enjoyed it. I, I had a question to ask you, sorry, before it skips my mind. What's your history been like with stage fright? I still have it. It was, it was, uh, it used to be really bad. Depending on the gig, it still kind of is, but it all kind of, as soon as you put that, even before you you put that first foot on stage when they're introducing, introducing me, it all goes away. Then I get into the, okay, let's do this. This is what it's all about. But the buildup, is still pretty crazy. I mean, it keeps me regular. Like I go to the bathroom eight times before yeah. <laughs> before a gig. Like it's crazy. Still, and, and you know, when I first started, it was just a blind fear of not knowing what what's going to happen. It's a fifty fifty shot. Either it's going to go good or poorly. You know. Whereas, and then after you do it for a long time, you kind of you know get confidence in your skill set and your your ability to do it. But it's still there. You still feel. You know, I have to consciously work on not dreading the day when I have a gig at night. I have to be like, okay, this is what I choose to do. Why am I, you know, feeling this way? So it's still definitely there. More in an anticipative way than it is when I'm on stage, there's no fear. It just completely goes away. What about you? Uh, 
it really depends. Like there's, yeah. some, there's some times where, you know, there's an interesting kind of subculture among musicians of taking these things called beta blockers. I don't know if you know anything about beta blockers. What beta blockers are is they're, a, they're actually a blood pressure medication, Yeah. but they totally eliminate the fight or flight response. No way. They block the adrenaline from coming out. So um, a lot, musicians typically take them for auditions. Because the way auditions work, I don't know if we talked about this, but you're, there's an opening for a job and then everyone shows up and you're behind a screen. They say, play this, 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 this. So it's sort of like playing darts with one eye closed. It's not really playing music. Right. And uh, I mean, I've definitely taken them for auditions. Um, but in terms of my typical stage fright, I would say it's almost the same as yours where the yeah. build up, like you're saying, going to the bathroom eight times. Yeah. It's like every time it's like five <laughs> minutes. Oh shit. I have time to like go. <laughs> yeah. Um, but if I'm, I'm having like a big bout of stage fright or something, it usually will last about two or three minutes into the performance. Mm-hmm. But uh, I've gotten, I was curious to know if you have like a method before going on stage of calming yourself down or do you go over your lines or do you just sort of... Music helps. Music. Yeah. Sorry, totally cut no, you no, off. No, 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 no. Music helps and this is incredibly corny and cheesy, but I say this line, two, two things. It's just a few short words. I'll either say I'm a force. Uh, be, a, be a force. I'll say be a force. Just be a force. Like go in that room and change the the energy. Either elevate it. Certainly don't bring it down. If it's already up, just yeah. keep, it, <laughs> keep it there or bring it up. But just be a force where people will, will feel it off of you. And it's something intangible where they just... It's not even the words you're saying. It's just be a force. And I also... And again, this is stupid, but you asked me the question, but... I'll also just say, watch this. Like, kind of in a begrudged, like, almost to spite the audience. Yeah, yeah. I'd be curious. like, watch this. And I just, it, it, it puts me in this mind frame of just, let's fucking do it. Why do you think that's stupid? Not stupid. I just feel uh, silly sharing it, I guess. Oh, really? Yeah. You know, like, I, I think that's like an incredibly powerful tool. Right. Yeah, yeah. it is. But just I, no, I, I, I guess know what you're saying. Yeah. It's just a, a mask to maybe people that are not in show business or yeah. in any creative field. They're going to be like, okay, this is just like jerking off. Because I wouldn't like say that. I just, these are things that I say to myself. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure. like going around, you know, be a force, motherfucker. Yeah, I'm just like yeah. to myself. I'm like, be a force, be a force. And that just kind of melts away anything because I'm like, you are in control of, of being that. And and I like, like stage fright is good in a way because it you have that nervous energy up there that that's good. That's where a lot of magic happens and stems from is that kind of nervous energy on stage. Yeah. You'll either create something you didn't expect or plan or something will happen. I help, it, I feel it helps me focus totally. Yeah. Do you, do you find that if you're almost too comfortable, you're gonna fuck up? Well, I mean, I I put a lot of value in in preparation now. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially now because you know you develop more and the things you can do are more complicated. Um, I I rest comfortably knowing that I've prepared well. Um, and if I'm but if I'm too comfortable, the thing that bothers me is I feel it doesn't count. That's right. You know, I love sports. Uh, yeah. And one of the things I love about sports and watching athletes is understanding when you can see when somebody knows a moment counts. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I I think sports would be boring if people didn't care. And if I don't feel nervous, if I don't have butterflies and if I don't feel some sort of anxiousness or anticipation or dread, even if it's dread, uh, then I just feel like what I'm doing, you know, maybe I should be doing something out. Maybe I, you know, I should just be like at home doing 
doing anything. Right. Um, it's been very rare that I've had a performance that's felt like that, and I'm very aware of it. And that feeling usually comes when I have not been taking care of my mind, haven't been taking care of my body, when I've been kind of letting my ego get in the way of what I want to do. You know, it'll happen at a show where it's maybe not a huge venue or something mm-hmm. like that. And I just kind of feel like I can wing it. And I think it's a defense mechanism to not be nervous about fucking up. Right. You know, so, oh, you know, it's just these people. So I'm, I'm, I try to be really aware of that uh, and take every concert really seriously. And I don't feel a sense of accomplishment if my heart rate hasn't accelerated a little bit and I finished right. a piece, you know, like you're, you're kind of in that, in that moment. Uh, and if you finish it and you just kind of feel like you just finished breakfast, I don't find any pleasure in that. Right. I mean, ultimately, I want to get pleasure out of what I'm doing. Mm. I want it to make me happy. And without nervousness, I, I don't, you know, that's the kind of the yin and yang, I would say, of performing. Do you have any pre-show rituals that, that help calm you down? Yeah, I do a lot of breathing exercises. Breathing now. helps. It's yeah. unbelievable how much, how much yeah. that helps. I mean, especially since my instrument, you know, is entirely based right. on breathing. But, uh, you know, I've, I'm a historically hyperactive person. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I talk a lot and I'm generally really high energy. And that serves me really well at times. But the ability to teach myself to just calm down you know if i'm yeah. if i'm too wound up and i gotta play something like lyrical and beautiful and slow and i'm sitting there like shaking like it like a, yeah 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 like a tiger you know like about to jump on something that doesn't really help you know yeah. so i do a lot of breathing exercise i really pay attention to my diet before i'm doing shows diet and exercise helps too like yeah. if you're training for a marathon as you go on tour it's like invaluable the yeah. amount of energy it gets you and the amount of nervous energy it gets rid of i find music I'll listen to my all-time favorite band is Pearl Jam. Here we go, PJ yeah. right there, uh, and uh, or the Tragically Hip. I find if I listen to that pre-show, it just because I'm listening to someone being 100% authentic and being themselves, not conforming to any idea of what they should do. So I'll listen to live live music. So I'll listen to a live Pearl Jam concert or a live Tragically Hip concert, and it's just like. It, you're listening, I guess, ultimately to someone that's being undeniable. And it just reminds me, just be undeniable. And then I'll, I'll repeat, like, be a force or, or just watch this. And they're kind of little tricks that I just um, use. Do you find that if you're, I've, and I, I ask because I find this, if I'm almost in perfect condition before a show, like super rested, super sober, super... Uh, feel great I find something will almost inevitably go awry with the performance I I find if I'm a little bit off either I traveled that day it's a travel I'm exhausted or I find that I don't have the energy or I I don't have anything left to lend to kind of that nervous energy before the show so I don't even think of the performance I'm so tired or whatever it may be then it always goes so much better, I find. Do you, do you find any, like, do you have any th- experiences like that? Well, I'm I'm not really sure if I can answer it from my perspective about that, but I can see why it makes perfect sense. I mean, I think, I don't remember if this is the right book. I think it was from a book called The Perfect Wrong Note. But if it's not, uh, sorry, but the, the general premise was uh, when someone's playing something, a piece of music, the thing that they'll miss most likely isn't the hard thing. You know, like in music, playing a high note. They're gonna not going to miss the high note. They're going to miss the easy thing that they thought they right. had under their belt, and that's where they're going to slip. Yeah. And I think that definitely comes from not being focused. And I think being a little uncomfortable... I think being a little uncomfortable is important. Yeah. 
I yeah. think it is too. The first time I ever realized that I was, this is years ago, we were both Jen and I were performing at um, Yak Yaks in Mississauga, but we were living in New York at the time. And we drove from our place to New York to Mississauga, and then we were going to be around here for a while. So we drove from New York to Mississauga, hit tons of traffic. We got there about 15 minutes before showtime. It usually required to show up at least 30 minutes. And that was one of the best sets I'd ever done because I had just driven nine and a half hours. I was completely exhausted. So I didn't have any, I didn't lend any energy to, to the dread that I would feel or, or stage fright or anything. So it was just like, yeah, of course I'm going to do this. I don't give a shit. I just spent nine and a half hours in a car and I'm drained, you know. And part of you probably was kind of freaked out you were going to be late. I don't know if you were, but like, right. so if you're, you're doing that, something you, else. but also what do you do when you think, okay, I don't have time to think, okay, I just got to go in there. And you yeah. sort of, in a way, like I've done, I remember did a crazy show where it was when I was in Peru. I played a concert in Lima. Then we got on an overnight bus to go up to this mountain town called Etiquipa, which is way, I mean, to the point where you're walking, like I'm in okay enough shape, but you know, you walk up the hill and the air is so thin. So you're always out yeah, of breath. Yeah. And I got off the bus, walked in, had a rehearsal and a concert immediately. And so you have this altitude difference. You have a brand new orchestra playing with a totally different bit of repertoire. And it went absolutely spectacularly just because you tend to find a, a focus, a zone that uh, it's, I think, really hard to recreate if you're just totally okay with everything. Yeah. 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 What was, uh, just because we're kind of all over the map, and, and th but this is the whole premise of the podcast. We just bounce around. But what was the first school you went to after high school? Uh, that's when I w worked at Juilliard. Juilliard, yeah. and you went to, was that on a scholarship? No, that's just, uh, I happened to know the teacher, and, and I had a place to stay for free. Wow. As you know, in New York is a, yeah. is a, is a big deal. That's so huge. How did you, you come across It has that? to do, like, through, uh, my family's connected to the Russian community, and there's right. a place there that... I thought you were going to say a Russian mob, but go ahead. No, it wasn't the mob. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so they, they, we knew the person who was running this place, and mm -hmm. he said, you know, you're more than welcome to stay here for, for a bit. And it was on the Upper East Side. So wow, it was, uh, shit. Like 93rd Amazing. Park. And that was two, a two-year program or one year? I was there for a year. A year? Yeah. But then I also just spent a lot of time in New York and I'd study with people yeah. and, and things like that. Yeah. So then from New York, you went to UCLA? To UCLA, How'd yeah. you get into that? Uh, I knew the teacher there. Again, going, yeah. it's like you said, you said you go kind of based on where the teachers are, but so far you're naming... Schools that are impressive to a not like a civilian. Well, like I mean, myself, those teachers tend know? to wind up, you know, at, at right. the but like right. for instance, uh, Eastman School of Music, which is in Rochester, yeah, of all places, right. it's like a big time music school. You wouldn't or expect Indiana it. and Bloomington, mm. you know, also you know, serious music program. How'd you ever leave California? To me, I I feel like California is one of those places where you. Why would anyone ever leave? Yeah, my opinions changed on it, kind of back and forth. Uh, mm -hmm. I left just because I wanted to study with somebody else and then yeah. you know, moved to Montreal. Uh, you know, looking, if I really, that was a time in my life when I was, I was an animal. Like I was partying, you know, I was going crazy. Yeah. Uh, that was like my formative drug years. Yeah. Uh, sorry if this is a family podcast. This is not a family, whore right. cunt. This is not a family podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, that's where I experimented with like all the drugs and all that. Um and then after I left and after I moved to Montreal, I really didn't like Montreal. That was the city I didn't like the most. But uh, I didn't really have an opinion on L.A. until recently, and it was really fantastic. You, you went know, back for... I, I haven't been I haven't been back since I moved. Maybe once or twice, but yeah. I just... What kind of drugs are we talking? Weed or... Yeah, my... Uh, weed was sort of... Weed was my second drug that I tried, if you can believe it. No shit. What was the first one? Uh, DXM. What Cough the hell? syrup. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. That, but that was like my... Uh, 
I think right after high school. Would you do mix it with booze or something? No, we just took little uh, tabs of it. Tabs so I, of I, cough syrup. Yeah, well, it's, I, I think it's DXM. I think that's the the initials for the for the the active ingredient. And it makes you high. I I, I don't. It know. fucks you up. Really? It, yeah, yeah. It first of all it makes you feel really nauseous, but then afterwards, every you just feel like a robot. Everything is sort of like in twenty frames per second. Whoa! And you're just absolutely out of your mind. Can you get DXM for us right now? I'd love to. <laughs> Dude, it's a shopper's drum. The the thing with DXM. I think what they ended up fixing, I, I don't know if this is true, uh, but you have to get like pure DXM. You can't get, you know, a lot of the costumes right. have like DXM plus this, plus, plus, plus this. If they have like acetaminophen in it or counter, something. Counter effects. Or well, it's counter, just really bad for you. Right. Um, but uh, I did that. And then weed, yeah. And then mushrooms. That was uh, the the first time I did mushrooms. It's funny. Two of those three things you mentioned, I don't consider drugs. And the one thing I'd never heard of before. So <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like weed and mushrooms, I consider... I mean, yeah, of course they are drugs, but technically right, drugs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I mean, it's interesting because probably, definitely a few of the most interesting thoughts I've had or the approaches to life that I've developed were on some pretty serious absolutely drugs. Like, yeah. Like acid was a big drug for me mm-hmm. in terms of becoming, I think, a smarter person. You know, it was after doing acid, where I. Uh, I started looking at myself more like an observer instead of like the person actually doing the things. And then that allowed me to sort of look at, you know, who do I interact with? How do I approach my career? And, you know, since, I mean, since doing acid a couple of times and really thinking about stuff and mushrooms, like you, it can change your perspective in a really good way if you're, if you're willing to think about things. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that was the first time I wrote just about my life. And, uh, it's definitely helped my playing. It's helped my approach to practicing. I mean, it was a revelation because, you know, I was always talented on drumming. I could do whatever I wanted to, but it really helped me organize how I practice and having a routine in my life. And it improved my life greatly. And now thinking back on LA, all the positive experiences that I built from happened in LA and sort of all the negative experiences that I had that sort of weighed on me for a number of years happened in Montreal. So that's kind of like why you have this retroactive kind of appreciation for LA. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it's this, just beautiful, man. It's beautiful. Oh, man, yeah. Especially and, UCLA. Right. And you were there for how many years? Two. Two, two wow. years. And then from there... To Montreal. To Montreal. Before we get into the Montreal, I just want to ask again about drugs and classical music, because obviously in rock and roll and other music genres, it's kind of expected. Is there a big drug and alcohol scene in the classical music industry? Uh I mean, <laughs> I like when you go see an, an orchestra and you're wearing a three-piece suit, nah, and are some so of them fucked up? Or? Well, okay, there are some people who are fucking drunk, but those people need to retire. Right, okay. Yeah, those so people need to get out. Kind of the old dogs in the... In yeah, the, man, yeah. like those, I mean, I mean, there's definitely been cases where you like just smell booze on people, but you can tell. I mean, you can tell they're fucked up. Yeah. And, uh, you know, those are the people that people in their section are like, God, just retire. Like, right. It, you have a lot of things to take care of. But um, for the most part, new blood in the industry are pretty clean and take it seriously? Well, that's, that's exactly it. Yeah. Right. They take it seriously and, you know, they might... And I think there's, like, a lot of pot smoking. Mm-hmm. Um, but music's kind of different. Classical music's different because you you can draw a pretty interesting crowd. There's definitely sort of the crowd of people that all they do is practice and they don't have any fun. That's what I picture. I picture our orchestra people or classical music 
classical musicians just on a constant cleanse or on a perma lent, you know, just all, <laughs> just like all, just all pure, vegans, all, yeah, all <laughs> vegans and pure music all the time. Cause that's, that's kind of what the music that comes from it is like just this beautiful kind of pure, because there are not, there are no lyrics or anything. So when you listen to rock and roll or something, there can be more kind of darkness to it based on the lyrics of, of a song or whatever. But, well, there's a composer actually. He's, he's it's my favorite composer. Kind of, uh, if you had to ask me, like who who's the composer that you enjoy? Or I, I wouldn't even say enjoy. That's the wrong word, but that you appreciate the most. And it's this 20th century Russian comp- composer named Shostakovich, whose music is dark as fuck. How, um, how is it dark without lyrics? And again, totally ignorant question, but I don't no, know. No, no, it's a good question actually. So, uh, first of all, his music. He has. Uh, Six symphonies were considered the war symphonies, and they were written during World War II in Russia. And he had a personal relationship with Stalin. Oh, wow. So he, uh, my favorite symphony of his is the fourth symphony, which is just, I mean, imagine watching the craziest, darkest movie, and the music is just twice as intense as that. It's all very dissonant. It doesn't have beautiful flowing melodies. It's very aggressive. It's very mechanical. He writes very mechanically because that's his uh, view of the Soviet Union, right? The Mm -hmm. machine. Uh, but he wrote this opera called Lady Macbeth of Zensk. And Stalin was really involved in kind of seeing who was writing what, you know, authors and, and painters and, and composers, I think, especially. And this opera was about a tyrant dictator who's murdered by his wife. So he's there for the first two acts and he seems to be enjoying it. And then he just leaves. And the next day, uh, written in, I think, the newspaper Pravda, I think that was the one that, is this review by some anonymous critic and it's held that it's most likely Stalin's writing saying that this composer is garbage, this music is trash, formulaic wow. nonsense. And typically that means you're done. Like you're dead. Um, and at the same time he was about to premiere the fourth symphony, which was, is, is the darkest and most intense piece of music in my opinion that he wrote. And it's very obvious what he's writing about, you know, uh, cause he was very much, there's an argument that maybe he was a communist, but it's not really accepted because, you know, he was keeping his life alive and you can hear in his music what he did. So this article came out and in the next days, the uh, orchestra was supposed to premiere the symphony and he walked in, he grabbed all the music and left. And it wasn't premiered until I think the 60s. And you can hear that in this music. It's just very percussive. It's very, uh, it's not often in a major key. It's mostly in minor and in dissonant, uh, you know, chords that are very uncomfortable to listen to. Mm-hmm. And very obviously about, you know, the struggle of, of his country and his people. Wow, that's so fascinating. Like, yeah. so, But it's the problem of classical musicians that, uh, I was talking to my friend about this, that, you know, orchestras are, symphony orchestras especially are struggling with money and this and that and what they tend to do is they tend to dumb down their programming so they do more pop shows so they'll do like music of star wars which is fine if you do that i mean it's fun to do anyway but they kind of dumb that down they kind of just play the classics which is what people recognize as this you know beautiful kind of and uh but that's not the music that connects with people everyone has a connection to world war ii or you know you either studied Mm -hmm. it in school or my family being a family of you know immigrants from the ex-soviet union I think this is the kind of thing that people should know more about. Right. Uh, and that I think it's the job of anybody, any performer to perform or to give to people what they think is valuable, not what they think the audience wants. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, you have to have something. I don't know in if there that answers you. your question. I it feel like I went on a tangent there. No, please. This is the Tangent Comedy Hour podcast. And um, but you said something interesting. You said you know uh, a bad review, being criticized by someone, can make you you can be dead. Obviously, that might mean literally if it's an, a dictator. But uh, is there a lot of stock put into bad reviews? No. No. Uh, no. I mean. Just back then, maybe more. Well, yeah, I mean, it's right. ba- back then a lot more, but uh, I don't know, man. I have a mixed review. I have sorry, I have a mixed idea of critics. Um, also, like I work in Italy, and right. in Italy, opera is like people go nuts. Like there's stories of people. I mean, people boo, they yell, they sing along if they hate what they're hearing. I mean, people go crazy. They get in fights. They get in fist fights. Um, there's great stories. Of one guy like clapping, and there's like this American guy who went to an opera. And he starts clapping, and the guy next to him starts chewing him out because he's clapping because they take it so seriously. And when you read reviews in Italy uh, of operas, they'll be like, you know, you know, in the score, page 235, third line, bar 120, uh, this was, you know, enunciated improperly. This is clearly not in Italian. Or they're like, oh, shit, this wow. is not the way that, you know, whatever composer wrote it, whether it's Verdi or whatever. That's not what he intended. And, and they'll, I mean, they'll eviscerate people. They'll go crazy. Uh, but here it, it, it ends up being fluff mm. and it ends up being more advertising than anything else. Um, why is that? Do you think because it's the old world and they have more connection to the, the kind of music or why? Well, why? definitely in Italy yeah. it's because people know opera. I mean, people right. just know it. It'd be like people criticizing basketball here, you know, as opposed to somebody right. criticizing basketball in, uh, or like in the U S sorry, like yeah. imagine a, a review of a basketball game in like, uh, like Kazakhstan, which right. I'm sure, you know, they probably have a, you know, a good league and all that, but here people just, it's just more part of the, of the culture. Totally. Uh, in Russia, I mean, I, I, I would imagine I've never been, but, uh, I imagine cultural reviewers are taken a lot more seriously in Russia. Do you still have family in Russia? Yeah. I have a yeah. cousin and I'm hopefully going to be going there in May. That was my next question. There we go. And why'd you hate Montreal so much? It was a absolutely, it's kind of interesting. Uh, I had a bad time there, mm-hmm. uh, and I tend to associate places with. Oh the hell yeah, of course. So I have this absolute love of Hamilton of all places because I spent three amazing summers there, having a great time, doing great work, just really enjoying myself. So every time I pull into Hamilton, even though it's Hamilton, um, and I I actually don't think it's like as bad of a city as people uh, some people say, but uh, I get this kind of jolt of energy. I'm like, oh, I remember this. And Montreal, it was just four or five years of I felt like I was. And I mean, granted, most of it was my fault, but still that sort of emotional response to that. City. I mean, I know it's an objectively great city. I know. I know it's awesome. Yeah, it has- but you're right. Like whether, whatever, whichever personal experience you go through, excuse me, when you're living there, it dictates how you will feel about that place forever. That was also the the place I spoke, smoked the most pot. I mean, obviously, right. but uh, <laughs> that would be the one time in my life where I could say that a substance had some sort of grip on me. And I don't know whether it was the situation made me do that or that, you know, exacerbated the Kind of chicken in the egg thing, yeah. Yeah, but it was like, I mean, I had a great time, don't get me wrong, Mm -hmm. you know. I think there's like a big difference between fun and like happiness. And I had a lot of fun there. Right. I was like a miserable human being. Oh, yeah, I can relate to that big time for sure. And you say you go to Italy a lot. You travel the world a lot. You you go. How how does that come about? With the opera, you go, you guys tour or just... uh, no, stuff. not with the opera. So Italy happened when I first played with the opera. It was right after their conductor dropped dead of a heart attack. 
Wow. And they needed to bring somebody in and they brought this Italian guy in and I just got to know him and then he invited me out. And that's usually, I mean, that's usually how it works. You how get often to know do you go out there? I've been there now six times in the past, maybe four years. Oh, cool. Yeah, so, so I go once or twice a year. Nice. And from there, like we've been to the Middle East, um, toured the Middle East and I've also played some concerts. Based on that connection you have yeah. in Italy, you can kind of have access to the rest well, of the world. Well, he brings me on tour to these right. places. Yeah. Cool. Right on, man. Uh, man, this has been uh, great. How do you feel about the interviews? Good? You feeling? Yeah. Is there anything you left out you want to? Well, I'm, I'm always just really curious. How do you feel as a comedian about the, uh, the possibility of touring internationally? Because with music, you know, I, I have an idea. Music is music and you can, you know, decide to do, you know, a piece from there or maybe music from a yeah. place close by. Like, how would you feel about the prospect of doing like comedy in like Singapore where they speak English I would love I would love that because it's all about a connection you make with people right and especially I mean I've only done it in English-speaking countries US and Canada um, but to go to a country that does not speak English as a first language but have these pockets of English speaking people maybe I would love to and I mean you fill your brain with all this these um, hurdles I think we talked about this on the ride. Like, for example, my first ever show I did, I'm from Moncton, New Brunswick. My first ever set was in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And before I even did my first ever set, I had just written some stuff down. I'd never done stand-up before, but I was driving to Halifax going, are these people going to get me? It's an hour and a half down, or two hours down the road. And I was questioning my hu- my sense of humor uh, based. I was like, oh man, they're never going to get me in Halifax. I do the set. It was fine. Sure enough. And performed, you know, in the Maritimes. And my first gig outside the Maritimes was Ottawa. And I'm like, oh, man, they're never going to get me in Ottawa. This is crazy. And there's no way. And then you do the show, and it's fine. And then I moved to New York. I'm like, oh, for sure, they're going to hate me in New York. They're not going to get me. And then it's fine. So I think at the end of the day, most audiences are pretty much the same. And when it comes to comedy especially, because you said music's music, and you play it, yeah, but... Comedy is kind of the same where it's such a visceral reaction to what you do. So if they understand the language, they'll either react to it or not. So, yeah. but I would love that. I feel I I would feel really good about about that. What if you were invited to let's say Iran? I would go in a second. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not one of these people that lets. Uh, I'll go anywhere that they will allow me to, uh, you know, unless there's some sort of travel ban. Well, it's really <laughs> interesting. Uh, I was supposed to go in January, just didn't work out because of visa, mm-hmm. but I was in Rome and uh, we just finished a concert. It was really awesome at the Presidential Palace, this place. You, wow. It makes the White House look like nothing. Yeah. But uh, the delegate from the Iranian, like I think the Iranian cultural ambassador came to lunch afterwards and I was sitting next to him and I kind of overheard their conversation. And... Uh, you know, in, in Iran, Western music is banned. Mm-hmm. It's considered evil. And But Iran's a fairly forward... I mean, the, the, the Iranian people are an intelligent, very forward thing. I mean, yeah. it's a, they're really amazing, wonderful people. And so they were like, yeah, every music's bad, except for Beethoven. You can do Beethoven <laughs> and all that. And, uh, and then they ended up doing a whole bunch of different music. You know, the women had to wear the headscarves and all that. But uh, I kept thinking, like, I wonder what the limits actually are. Mm. What are the limits, you know, and especially coming from something like comedy, which the, what I really value in comedy personally is I grew up in a very religious family. My parents, thankfully, were never super pushy about it, but definitely religious. Yeah, same here. And super. I grew up, I grew up 
I know that I, I knew even from a young age or a couple incidents where I can look back and go, okay, I always sort of thought a lot differently, but comedy was the first thing that ever just, you know, you hear George Carlin say religion is bullshit and you don't really know what he's saying. But then, you know, you start, it makes you want to look into things and, mm. and I find it be really valuable. You, would you find any sort of discomfort? Would Do you feel like your idea would be to go and just do your set for the sake of giving you know, the audience exactly that? Or if if you were given some sort of limits, would you be resistant to that or would you sort of be open to it? Well, at the end of the day, I'm a professional. So if I'm given limits, I will, for the most part, you know, stick stick to that. But if I'm not given, given limits, I won't limit myself. You know, I won't think, I won't assume limitations. For example, if I was, just to use your example, if I was invited to do comedy in Iran and they gave me no limitations or notes pre-show, I wouldn't impose these limits that I would make up on myself. You know what I mean? I would just go from by what's what what they told me. At the end of the day, uh, I'm running a business and I'm a comic. Yeah. So as much as the art form is important and getting my my point of view across, if I do a gig, whether it's in Toronto or in Iran, see how I went city and then country. <laughs> I would, I would just, if they didn't say anything, I would just do my act. You, you don't feel like you'd, you, there's anything in your material that you would feel then? Well, even if they wa- if there was, if they didn't mention it off the top, for it, yeah. that would be my kind of uh, pr- protection as far as, well, no one said anything. And, yeah. and um, no, I would just kind of deal with it. If, if I said something consequential, I would just kind of deal with it. And I hope, and hope that wouldn't get my hands cut off or thrown in prison, <laughs> whatever. But... No, I, I'm all about the art form and about uh, expressing really. So, whoever hires me, I mean, that's kind of what. Uh, unless they say something, uh, I'll just go full on. That's great. I know a lot of people who wouldn't say that. Yeah, but I. I'm, I mean, it's a question I, just, I like to ask people. Like, if yeah. you went, if you went to that place where you know that right. there is, you know, there's certain things that just don't, you know, jive with how we think. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of people who won't answer that directly. They say, "Well, of course I do that," but you know, there is this yeah. little thing and that little thing. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it's all about human connection, like yeah. I was saying earlier. And uh, you know, oftentimes we have these preconceived notions about a people, like whether it's people from Iran or anywhere else. You just think based on the media, the news that you're watching, you, you get this idea of people. But then you go and then you meet people one on one, and you realize they're not much different than we are. Well, they're at, all the same. At, at the end of the day, it's like, you know, we're dealing with people, humans. And, uh, you know, you talked about George Carlin. I very much subscribe to his thinking about people, where he said he loves people one-on-one. People are so interesting, fascinating one-on-one. But as soon as you get a group of them, you know, you're fucked. People in groups are idiots. Yeah, man, they, they do dumb shit and they're just... We're so tribal, right? I guess right. Like people were just... Tri- you know, I, I was just in Israel and Palestine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that is like the epitome of tension. Right. Being, you know, and you cross over the wall into Palestine and it's this imposing, ugly thing, um, you know, with gar- and, and you just see this, this horrible situation among people that, you know, have lived together, you know, and have had these problems. Then you talk to any of them individually and you realize they just want to have a good life. They want to have a family if they want. They want to have a job. Game over. But yeah, as soon as you get into everyone wants to be part of a team, right? Yeah. And then that's where the problems happen. Like George Carlin said, he loves people and in, in, like, individuals hates fucking groups of people. And I completely understand 100%. that. 100%. You get it. 
All right, man. Andre Devilston, you want to play us out? What do you think? You want to whip out the horn? And sure, man. I can play something. Give us a little something. Oh, man. G can you give us a little plunger action? Yeah. All right, give us a little plunger.
<laughs> oh man, that was awesome. Thank you, uh, thank you, brother. I appreciate it. Get on mic for a sec here. What the the raspy uh, the raspiness? There's some notes you play that there's kind of a rasp to it. Is that does that the plunger do that or no? Do, it's uh, in my so I kind of growl through the <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, that sounds awesome. And then the plunger gives it sort of that yelling, wah wah, like yeah. someone yelling at you. And you're uh, you, like, if I played the trumpet that well, Mike, because I'm. I took a video here that I'll put on the website. Um, uh, so check it out on facebook.com slash jdcomedyhour and also jdcomedyhour.com. But uh, if I play the trumpet, my eyes would, al- I'd always be like, oh my God, I'm doing this. This is unbelievable. You just kind of look like you're like, yeah, this is. Man, I enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. yeah. Um, also, uh, I just like, I have a week to just kind of practice. Right. So I kind of, feel like i'm in like a good place to just kind of play yeah you look like so relaxed and comfortable you gotta be you gotta gotta be your your eyes will pop out of your head yeah like it's really important not to have any tension you know and you breathe in through the nose it depends depends yeah the the bad thing about breathing through your nose can be a sorry guys this is really technical and boring but it can get your shoulders to rise up so i kind of do it if i want to take a quick breath if i'm taking a full breath i try to breathe through my mouth right well, Andre, thank you so no, much. Man, I want to thank, the... thank you for having me. Uh, it was a really interesting conversation. Oh, are you and... kidding me? It was uh, it was so easy to talk to you, and I knew it because, um, like I said, we, I mean, we drove together for for four and a half hours the other day, and uh, f- we talked for what four hours and yeah. twenty seven minutes. I wanted that? to say though, like the other guy that w- there were two other guys with us. There's one guy who's like listening to music on his phone really loud. Yes. But then there was the other guy, man, and that guy fascinated me. I was thinking of having him for a podcast because he like he's got an interesting story. Yeah, no kidding, man. So maybe we'll we'll hear from him, but uh, anyways, I had no doubt you'd be a great guest and you ended up fulfilling that and living up to the expectations. So thank you so much. Thanks. I look uh, forward to seeing you uh, perform. Yeah, and we'll you be and Jen. Uh, yeah, me and Jen. Uh, we'll be in touch for sure. Uh, uh, friends now. Yeah, man. Right? Man, it was All a right. pleasure. Thanks a lot. Man. Thanks, man. And watch your head. Waste of time. A waste of time. A beautiful waste of time. And there it is. Another one in the books. Thanks to my guest, Andre Doublestim. That was a great, uh, great chatty interview. And thanks to you for listening. Always remember to email the show pod at jdcomedyhour.com. Tell me that you accept me. Follow on Instagram and Twitter at jdcomedyhour. And like the Facebook uh, page, facebook.com slash jdcomedyhour. And subscribe on iTunes and all that shit. And download my albums. Go ahead. Just do it. jdcomedy.ca. Plug, 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 plug fest. All right. Thank you so much. Always, I appreciate you. I really, really do. More than you. More than, uh, you know. All right. We'll see you Friday. We'll talk to you Friday. We're bringing a brand new segment to you um, that you will enjoy, and I'm excited to uh, share with you, okay? And in the meantime, have a good week, and watch your head.
Uh, just type my name in. The ones on YouTube that are there aren't the newest, but there's there's a few things. I look hilariously young <laughs> in those. Is this you here? Yep. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this is a company that makes uh, really, really good instruments. There's a really famous jazz trumpet player named Wynton Marsalis, mm-hmm. who uh, he's sort of the, the poster kind of spokesman for those instruments and it's where i grew up in portland oregon really strange guy who makes the trumpets he's like gone through every possible sort of uh like buddhist yoga vegan fad (laughs) you know like really bizarre kind of guy but an absolute genius uh i think he studied physics oh cool and started making these instruments he was really into jazz and makes absolutely great instruments well let's listen to one of them and then we'll start right after this finishes so this is where they uh kind of demonstrate the instrument (laughs) 